Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And that email address is below in the description section to this video. And feel free to send me any questions you have, and I'll get them in my queue, and I will try to get to them as quickly as I can. I usually do about eight to six to eight questions a week. So that's the pace at which I can get to them. And I've got some great ones in the queue and some great ones this week. So let's go ahead and get to it without any further delay. Steve Wood, I learned from one of your previous programs that there was without doubt a hostile takeover when Hubbard died and his supporters, Mark Yeager, Ray Midoff, Mark Ingber, Heber Gench, Norm Starkey, and Guillaume Lesev were all eventually dumped into the hole and constantly abused and mistreated by Miscavige. Assuming that is the case, I would like to know what on earth do those people do every single day, and at what point do they stop and think, well, we're saving the planet? But assuming they do think that, does it ever cross their mind that they aren't saving the planet at all, but seem to be living on a prison planet, the very same thing they were in charge of saving mankind from? Surely it must cross their minds that something's not right here, or they are so far gone and as good Scientologists, they fully believe they brought all of this upon themselves. Because as we all know, and then you have told us, Scientology can never be in the wrong. I'd be fascinated to hear your take on this, Chris. All right, Steve, thanks for this. And um, you see, it's kind of all of the above. Here's the, th you know, the thing about people, and especially the people you're asking about, you know, these are... Ray Midoff, Mark Ingber, these are people who uh, were in Scientology for decades. Um, I've been in the Sea Org for decades. I mean, we're talking all the way back to the 1970s. And uh, that's a long time ago. These people have been in this mindset for a very long time. And I think you'll agree with me that anyone, anywhere, in any mindset, in any belief set is, you know, a worldview. You know, we construct this. And, and anybody who is in one for any length of time, decades, is going to be pretty used to it. They're going to, this is their life. This is how it is. There isn't some other way to be. And that kind of acceptance of a harsh, abusive even environment is just kind of, okay, this is how it is. And this is, I, I speak about this from my own experience as a Sea Org member of 17 years, where I endured all kinds of physical and psychological nonsense that I was well aware was nonsense when it was happening. And I didn't want it. I didn't agree with it. I didn't think it was a good thing to do, but I didn't feel like I had a choice because the trade-off was if I don't follow these rules, if I don't agree to do this because this guy is really pissed at me right now and I have to follow his orders. Well, if I don't do that, it's the door. It's You're out. You're gone. And that is a completely unacceptable alternative for people who are in a situation like that. The, the, what, we, what I try to stress here with the, with the point about cultic belief sets is that you have a belief that you believe in so hard, that you are so sure is true, that you're really willing to go all the way for it. And we all have those ideas. Some of them mostly, you know, for most people in the world, they experience that level of belief or um, dedication 
or honor or duty or sacrifice when it comes to family, when it comes to um, maybe sometimes their job, but more often maybe personal things, um, you know, clubs or, or groups or something, especially, you know, maybe if they started it or founding parts of it or something. I mean, it's, it's a matter of making the thing yours. This is your Scientology, okay, getting to these guys. And when we talk about people like Ray Midoff or Mark Ingber or Mark Yeager or Heber Gentsch, you are talking old school management. These are people who are involved in the, the very creating the very foundational structure that Scientology still operates on. You know, Hubbard was winging it. He was here. He was there. He was putting stuff together. He was trying to figure crap out as he was going. He was taking a lot of advice from other people, earlier renditions of Mark Ingber and Ray Midoff and the like, both on technical matters and on policy matters. And Mary Sue was a constant through all of this. So all of these people, what I'm trying to say here is all these people built this structure. They weren't just participants. Ray Midoff was not just some guy who walked in off the street, you know, got beat or beat up a little bit, and then went, you know, this is this is kind of fun. I think I'll stick with this. And, you know, that's that's these are people who rose over years and years through a lot of training, a lot of indoctrination, a lot of activity, a lot of gung-ho pushing and fighting and helping and working and, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And they feel that they've, you know, these are old guys. I mean, at this point, very old guys. And they, they, whatever, you know, their decision point, their, their window of opportunity to step out of this picture and no longer be part of it was probably closed in the 1980s, certainly by the 1990s, because Miscavige had them under his iron fist when he took over. Some of these people, though, let's not forget, some of these people helped Miscavige take over. So, you know, to that degree, I suppose you could say that there's blood on their hands. But the truth of the matter is that what I'm trying to speak to is that from their point of view, they know that they enabled this man and put him in this position or helped put him in this position. And there's nothing they can do about it now. And this is their life now. I mean, you know, when you get to cross, you know, 70 years old, and I believe all these guys are, you know, are probably in their 60s at this point or 70s, if not older. Um, I, did, I did no math. Okay, I'm just totally throwing this out here. But, um, you know, you, you, you get to a place where your environment, your world, the world you've come to live in and you're going to have as your life, you just settle. You just go, well, this is, this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. And the idea of changing that up or, or escaping or, you know, it, it, you know, and who's to say, by the way, that some of these guys haven't tried to escape. We know Mark Yeager sure did. And as a result, he was um, put on basically solitary confinement for a good period of time and hard physical labor. So, you know, they've also had some rather harsh lessons delivered to them at the hands of Miscavige. Um, you know, remember that we're not talking about people in a room who could just get up and walk out and go make their way in the world. It's no big deal. There happens to be a psychopath at the door who is actively preventing them from leaving. And he happens to have a little army of young people who will basically do anything he says. Are these old guys really going to step up and step out of that? You know, are they really going to like make a fuss at this point? No, of course they're not. 
you know, had have, I am sure all of them being human beings and having rational minds and, and moral compasses that they have, I'm pretty sure every single one of them has had many instances, just like I did, of doubts, of fear, of uncertainty, of, of knowing that what you're doing isn't really what you ever imagined you would be doing or should be doing. But it's the cause. It's, it's, it's your life. It's what you're there. I mean, it's all your friends. It's your family. It's everything. Your whole world is this thing. And after a certain point, it's almost impossible to consider stepping out of it. You know, I, I hope I'm painting a picture that makes sense here because it, I, it makes sense to me. And, um, and it's not just a matter of they're all just a bunch of stupid idiots, right? And Steve, I know you're not saying that they are or even implying that in your question. But you asked my, for my take on this. And so this is, this is kind of where I can come from on it is that if you can imagine the thing that means most to you in your life, Whatever it is, whatever relationship it is or whatever subject or topic it is, you know, like, like imagine for a second, what is the most important thing to you? Not you, outside of you, your club, group, belief, person, whatever it is. Now imagine me asking you for you on your own, willingly, and with full, you know, uh, determination drop it, skip it, change your mind, knock it off, stop doing that, stop loving that person, stop wanting that job, stop doing that work, stop being a part of that activity, just knock it off right now. I mean, how easy is that for you to contemplate? You know, if it's, if it's truly an answer to the question I asked you, it should be damn near impossible for you to contemplate it. You know, and to the to the same order that you know, could I just leave my wife? Could I just get up and leave Melissa now? You know, because we have a fight, or because you know things get a little out of hand, and and that's kind of where I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to make that comparison so you understand that when you're in that mix, when you're in that situation, as bad as it might look or feel or be for you. You always imagine it's going to come to an end. There's going to be a stop to this. We're going to we're going to be able to get on with the whole reason I'm here in the first place. And even if you get that beaten out of you, you still want to make the best of the situation. Everybody does that. Everybody, you know, through conditions that were much harsher than anything that these particular individuals have had to endure even under David Miscavige. People have found hope and, and, and the, the reasons to go on and reasons to continue fighting the good fight as they see it. And that's how these guys are. They think they're fighting the good fight. So that's why it's not really so alien or weird or strange to me anymore is to try to imagine why people would put up with the kind of things that they put up with uh, under Miscavige. Because... Because you have a purpose and a belief and, a, and, a, and, a, and your life has meaning and is defined by this group that you're part of and the subject matter that you're part of. Okay, so I hope that gets that across. Um, and I, and I, and I, I realize I might be coming across a little impatiently here. And I hope that's not, I hope that's not, I, I just realized that. And I hope that's not how I'm coming across because I'm trying to explain it in the simplest possible way that hopefully people can get this. It's really not any you know, a whole, whole, whole lot different from the everyday things all of us experience 
Like I always say, though, it's just taking the volume and turning it up to 11. Okay, thanks, Steve. Dwayne Davies. I'm a critic of Scientology, and I have followed your show and others for some time now. I decided that I would sign up for their free pamphlet, A Description of Scientology, so that I could see firsthand just what they were trying to peddle to those curious in their cult. I noticed that in the section about L. Ron Hubbard, it says that he was injured, but it does not claim that he healed himself using Dianetics. It does say that he used Dianetics on other injured people, but at no point does it clearly state that he healed himself using Dianetics. This is interesting. I know that Hubbard and the church have historically alleged that Hubbard claimed to have healed himself with Dianetics. Representatives of the church have gone on record stating that if this is not true, then Dianetics is not true, and therefore Scientology itself is less credible, or something to that effect. Yet this book does not make the claim that Hubbard healed himself with Dianetics, even though Hubbard himself made a big deal about this, and I believe the church used to push this lie quite a lot. Is this something that they have never pushed hard to new recruits? Is there a time where such a pamphlet would have made the claim that Hubbard healed himself? If not, do you think the fact that they are not doing so now is a result of the fact that the church knows that they cannot get away with making this claim? After all, anyone can check his war records these days. The church seems as though it is far too out of touch with reality in general to realize that they should stop making such claims, yet in this pamphlet they do not. What do you make of this? Okay, thanks for the question. And, I mean, pretty obviously, you know, there has been enough backlash against Hubbard's tall tales that they are trying to present a more generalized, less specific, less uh, highfalutin kind of claims at the beginning. I mean, it's a fairly controversial and um, uh, pretty pretty serious claim that, you know, you were lame, blinded from your war injuries, abandoned by your family, nobody was supporting you, and you figured out all on your own a science of the mind that enabled you to recreate, uh, you know, damaged cells or, or, or heal damaged body parts that were permanently injured and turn the whole thing around. That is quite a magn—anyway, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, I, you know, for, for just because of that, just somebody could have, you know, fresh eyes could have come into the marketing area or whatever and said, oh, my God, maybe we should tone this down a little bit. Surveys are often used in Scientology as well, and it could well be that they surveyed the general public now and, you know, and came up with the idea that such claims are not a good thing to be putting in there. More likely, though— in addition to what, else, what, I, what I already just said, which could be factors in this, more than likely what happened is when, when Tommy Davis opened his big mouth, as you mentioned in the question, and said that Dianetics and Scientology would themselves be un, you know, uh, devaluated or disproven or debunked if it was shown that Hubbard didn't do that, I think what that really did is it indicated to David Miscavige or somebody at that level that, oh my God, this is a real vulnerability that we had not really thought of that way before. We didn't, we didn't really think of the consequences of this. And then once Tommy Davis said it out loud, well, he got canned. And I'm, I'm personally positive that the reason he was canned was, was for that statement, because it reveals a huge chink in the armor of Scientology's credibility. 
And of course, you know, so do lots of other things when you get to the heart and truth of it. But the way Scientologists believe they are presenting themselves to the world is best foot forward, most positive light. This is the stuff you want. They really think that they've got their, you know, um, their wagon hitched to a star and that this thing is going to is 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 the most miraculous, you know, wonderful stuff you could possibly imagine. So they don't want anything being put out there that's going to be instantly refuted, be instantly disproven or debunked or whatever. And, and that particular claim, it's pretty easy to debunk at this point. You know, it sounds ridiculous because it is and it didn't happen and it can be proven that it didn't happen. So those are the kind of places where Scientology has to meet reality and has to adjust somewhat to that reality. And uh, because it's frontline stuff, you see, it's not deep inside stuff. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you think or what the whole world thinks about the Xenu narrative. They're not changing it. It's there, it's, it's in Hubbard's handwriting, it's going to be there forever. And they can always tell you well, you didn't actually get the real OT3, or you're only getting part of it, or you're only laughing at, you know, this this uh, altered, modified version of it. And you got to get in, and you got to go all the way up and pass all the loyalty tests, and pay all the money, and you know, and get through all the gates in order to get to that material. So they can control that stuff, and uh, and they'll expect you at that point to believe it. But at the front gate, they can't do the. The hardcore, well, you have to believe this or, you know, we're going to destroy your life or destroy your family or something. They can't, you know, they can't do that at the opening front gates. They got to tone it down. They got to bring the levels down a bit at those at, at that position. And so um, so that's why they as far as I can tell, that's why they would just go, OK, just take it out. We're not putting that in there anymore. And. And just sort of suppress the cognitive dissonance if it comes up, you know, with the individuals. This sort of this sort of change, I'm sure, would come from Miscavige directly, and um, and really, at the end of the day, I think it's really just a, a a pretty clear response to the Tommy Davis exposure and threat. So, Katie LaSalle, I've got the news today that Leah's documentary series is now available on Netflix. This is great news. Do you think this reflects the media slash Hollywood slash entertainment industry moving even further away from Scientology? The disenchantment isn't quite gone from Tom Cruise yet. However, on top of Danny Masterson's recent prosecution, do you think the general view of the Church of Scientology is going in the right direction, exposing their true intentions and negativity? Thanks for the question, Katie. Yes, I absolutely believe that everything has been going in the right direction in terms of the exposure of Scientology for the last 14 years. <laughs> um, what was it? 2007, 8, I guess, was, was anonymous. So maybe last 12 years. Prior to that, of course, as I've commented many times, it was very, very, very difficult to get anybody to take you seriously or listen to you if you were a Scientology critic. It would be in, in in sensational news stories or news, you know, uh, magazine uh, style TV shows, but that was about it. You couldn't get real hardcore exposure ever since that Time Magazine article back in '91, where um, Richard Behar did such a stand-up job of exposing it all, and then Scientology slapped him with this huge lawsuit, lost, but ended up costing Time Magazine like 300 million dollars or some nonsense. 
And uh, and so journalists wanted to stay away from it. After Anonymous happened and after the exposure of the, the truth rundown in the Santa Bay, in St. Petersburg Times, and um, then the TV show started, Going Clear came out, and then Scientology in the aftermath. And that whole sequence of events uh, hit the church like a Mike Tyson blow to the face. I mean, it just, they had never been hit that hard before, not in the PR front. Not even close. Uh, even as bad as 1970s was, I mean, that was, you know, 50, what is that, 20, uh, 30, 40, yeah, 43 years ago is 1977. So, uh, you know, that was a hard hit when they were raided by the FBI. That was devastating, but it didn't destroy Scientology. It wasn't, it didn't destroy its public name. And they, they somehow, you know, after a couple of years, wangled their way out of that and grew and got bigger than ever. That's not what's happening now. And, uh, yeah, the, the exposure has definitely hurt their Hollywood status, specifically, like you asked. And you don't see the movie stars who are Scientologists talking about it at all. Uh, Michael Pena, these other guys, uh, Elizabeth Moss, um, the girl from Orange is the New Black. I mean, um, you know, none of these none of these guys are talking about it at all. And uh, and they get to control the interviews that they're in. So they don't have to and they don't get asked sharp and pointed questions about it. Certainly, Tom Cruise is uh, has, a, you know, a thousand percent control over his interviews and the format of them. So he doesn't have to answer any more tough questions about it. And he knows he already just about ruined his career and that's pretty, that's that's quite something, you know, for somebody of Tom Cruise's stature as a movie star and producer and, and I guess, studio owner or whatever it is he's doing, um, you know, when he went all in and all wild on Scientology just prior to all that exposure, um, and then his video was actually part of the exposure, that turtleneck video. Anyway, when he went all out on that, you know, there was such backlash, such a negative reaction to it. And he had tried to blackmail the all the rest of the celebs into doing the same thing he had been doing. And I think they looked at what he was doing and went, yeah, we're not doing that. And, uh, you know, and 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 so now Tom is still uh, was, was made to shut the hell up about that. So clearly Scientology does not have the sway that it once held in Hollywood, not even remotely so. And I don't think they're going to get it back because there has been this COVID problem over the last year. And that happened to hit Scientology at exactly the perfect time as a sort of a one-two punch to even further reduce their numbers. They had to close their orgs for periods of time because of the lockdowns. And Scientology is all about recruitment through personal contact. The websites, the online stuff is just to whet your appetite and get you in the building so they can sit down with you and make the personal emotional connection necessary to actually get you on board. Uh, you could be recruited online and that could happen, but not anywhere near in the numbers. That's not going to happen in the numbers that they can get when they are out in the streets, passing out pamphlets, selling books, bringing people in. And that is now made next to impossible because of COVID. So sometimes it happens that we get a fortuitous circumstantial situations, right? Circumstances come together that make it even harder or, you know, better or something. And in this case with Scientology, all that exposure, 
all those TV shows, books, us coming forward, everything. And then COVID hits. There are very few silver linings uh, to the black cloud of COVID. But this is one of them, is that Scientology has not been able to propagate, has not been able to get out and disseminate their stuff. And so they are suffering as a result. And I couldn't be happier about that. Peter, when you discuss Scientology and other groups, the phrase cult playbook often comes up. This suggests that the founders have carefully and deliberately selected mechanisms in order to create an effective high-control group. I wonder how often it is actually more random. Let's say we look at 100 religious groups, martial arts dojos, knitting circles, etc. One has a lot of terminology, practically their own language. Others develop a strong shunning mechanism. Yet other groups will have traits of us-versus-them thinking, trance-inducing and thought-stopping practices, magical thinking, etc. Every now and then, there will be a group that is the perfect storm of lure and abuse. Eventually, this group will make it into the headlines, and then we will count how many of the cult playbook checkboxes it ticks. I think by now we have a rather complete set of traits of high-control groups, so we know what to expect. But was it deliberate design on the part of the founders, or is it an effect of selection because we tend to look at the most effective abusers? Peter, this is a great question, and it fits completely with what I, the point I've been making for years, which is that it is an organic process in many, many, many ways. There are only so many things you can do to influence people. There are only so many things you can do to engage in indoctrination, and there are even you know, other things that you can do, even lesser numbers of things that you can do in order to engage in full-blown thought reform. Okay, so that's sort of this, you know, this if, if this is all the stuff you do in order to manipulate people, you know, as you go down the line and get in more and more and more intense with it, then there are certain things that come up that you have to do in order to in order to maintain, okay, in order to either recruit the person or retain them or deal with them after they have left. I personally believe that a lot of what we see in destructive cult behavior has to do sociologically with the formation of any new group with a strong, vital purpose that they think that, you know, is, is very, very, very important, very big. Uh, but it really, I think any group um, that is going to form up, you're going to have a tougher time of it at the beginning. You're going to be rougher on the membership. You're going to be, you're going to require more dedication from them in order to make the group kind of get over that hump. You know, that, that point where you're blowing up the balloon and, and it's really hard to blow and then suddenly it expands and you go, ah, now I got the balloon blown up. And then you just keep pumping air and it just gets bigger and bigger. But that first bit is really hard to do. And I think that that is what we see with the formation of almost any new group is if it's it, one of the ways that a leader or the people who put that group together can treat the members of the group or start operating with the group is in a fairly harsh, dictatorial, authoritarian way. And they do that in order to ensure the group's survival. Now, with a group like Jim Jones's, you know, People's Temple or uh, the Branch Davidians down in Waco, you don't want the group surviving. They're a bad group. They do bad things. They have bad ideas. So I think in those cases especially, the harsher methodologies come into play, but really those kind of methods can also come into play in good groups too. 
sacrifices must be made, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, this is this is the attitude of people who are really gung-ho in, in small groups as they try to get them up and into a viable range of activity where they really do become self-sustaining. Um, those are just some, you know, just some ideas I have about it, but, um, but I, I, I've seen those things play out. So in terms of, um, you know, the cult playbook that I love referring to, it is simply the collection of, you know, sort of writing down all the things that we have learned work. And the first cult playbook was Lifton's book, as far as I can tell, is, uh, in terms of documenting this stuff. And Lifton's book is um, The Psychology of Totalism, and, you know, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And that was uh, what offered up an eight-point analysis of what these, you know, what you have to do in order to really heavily manipulate somebody to the point of actual thought reform. And that's an that's a that's a that's at the end of the spectrum of influence. You know, you go from education or just talking to somebody all the way over to the harshest thought reform, right? Which is past indoctrination. So um, so that's where the analysis of this activity came from. But the activity's been going on for millennia. And people who rise to the top of these kind of groups or of any group learn along the way that this is what you gotta do. Uh, Machiavelli knew this stuff, right? Bernays talks about a lot of this stuff. I mean, in terms of propaganda, in terms of the the backstabbing and the intrigue, and you know, they, these were guys who were also documenting a authoritarian or cult or um, you know totalist playbook, I guess you could say. Uh, Bernays was really just you know laying out all the propaganda techniques, but he didn't invent them. He was more, really, more documenting what was what was either already known or what needed to be analyzed and figured out, but was already in play. People were already doing this stuff. Uh, of course, with propaganda, you get, um, you know, that's that's not exactly the same thing as the cult playbook. The propaganda playbook is similar, associated to it, but not exactly the same. So anyway, yes, I believe that uh, as you've asked here, I think you're going to see this stuff all over the place. And you don't have to study it first in order to actually do it or do it, uh, you know, effectively, put it that way. However, you also do have people like Keith Raniere from Nexium, who is now going to be serving 120, you know, years in jail, um, who do study, who do try to look, who do try to figure out. I believe Jim Jones did that, too. I think he spent quite a bit of time with evangelicals and in, in, uh learning how they, you know, how ministers and stuff operate. So you can, you can study, you can go learn it and then go apply your, you know, the, the, the benefits of your, of your learning in a nefarious way. You can totally do that. And I'm sure a bunch of these guys along the way hit walls and went, oh man, how do I deal with this? And, and did a little bit of study, you know, or called a few people or tried to figure out what, what do I do here or here? entirely possible. So, um, so I think that's how it, I think that's how kind of the picture works. And I think as we are going and we are studying this and talking about and trying to figure this out, the more accurate information we can put into the documentation and, and build this cult playbook so we can see what they're doing and how to counter it. And there you go. David, I was wondering what you think of Tony Ortega's unease at the U.S. government saying that Scientologists being prosecuted in Russia are prisoners of conscience. I know that hasn't gone down well with everyone. 
Alonzo, for instance, has tried to accuse him of hypocrisy and even becoming what he sought to destroy. Personally, I think that view is pretty ridiculous, and I agree with Tony on this. I think you can be consistent in opposing authoritarian governments like Russia's while not wanting to speak out effectively in favor of Scientology, just as I think you can oppose the death penalty while also not wanting to attend protests against the executions of people like John Wayne Gacy. I'm interested to hear your opinion on this. Thanks, David. And you and I are on the same page on this. I absolutely, and in fact, I've made videos about it. I think a few years ago, when Russia was first starting to put the ban on on the kibosh on Scientology and on the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Lloyd Evans and I did a video, and we and we sort of had a discussion and talk about this because I could not state more strongly my categorical disagreement with banning a religion or a cult or a belief set. Uh, with the intent that you're going to somehow suppress that thought out of existence, because that's never going to happen. You know, it doesn't work that way. Ideas are bulletproof, and it is very, very, very hard to kill them um, because they propagate in microseconds. It doesn't take anything for an idea to pass. It, it's the fastest virus in the world, <laughs> especially with the Internet. So how do you kill an idea? Well, you can, you know, try to kill or prosecute people who have those ideas. But after a while, you know, that, that itself becomes a reason to have the idea. Oh, the Russian government thinks this is a bad idea? There must be something to it. And people pile on and you get new converts from that. This is, and this is what martyrdom is all about. Right? If this idea is so dangerous and so catastrophic to the good social order of Mother Russia that they have to uh, prosecute, imprison, torture, and kill these people, and, and they're not killing Scientologists, but they are prosecuting them and they are imprisoning them. Same with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if, and if that's going on, then other people who are already anti-Russia or anti-authoritarianism, and most people are, are going to look at that, and they're, those ideas are going to actually gain credibility. This is how the psychology works, unfortunately. They're going to gain credibility by doing that. And that's why I say, please don't do that. You're helping the Scientologists and the Jehovah's Witnesses to grow their numbers by prosecuting them that way. Not prosecuting somebody like David Miscavige. David Miscavige is the person who needs to be prosecuted. That's the guy who's actually committing criminal acts. Your regular Joe Blow Scientologist working at an org, you know, they're not getting into that deepest stuff. The deepest they'll get into, for the most part, is either, either covering up sexual assault crap or pedophilia or the uh, financial shenanigans, credit card fraud, stuff like that. And that's bad stuff. And those people should be prosecuted for those individual crimes. But those crimes don't have anything to do with, directly with, the Scientology belief. Those are just crimes. They did bad things. They need to be put in jail for them. But they don't need to be put in jail because they're Scientologists because they're Jehovah's Witnesses, because they maintain a belief that you think is ridiculous. And um, nor should they be imprisoned because you think they're an authoritarian group or you think that they're a subversive group. Uh-uh, right? This is why we have a court system, and this is why in Russia the court system is so broken 
factually here in America as well, it's kind of broken, but nothing like it is in, you know, in, the, in a country like Russia. So, um, so there, even the legal efforts that are made come from this heavily, heavily biased uh, arena, right? And of course, there is um, there are other factors at play there too in, in Russia that is not just involved with how bad Scientology is or how bad the Jehovah's Witnesses are, but also you have this very heavy bias towards the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, and it is you know sort of the church in charge over there, and they are not interested in competition. So you get that kind of thing happening too, and it's and and they're not just bystanders on that. They're they they definitely take active measures to try to prosecute and get rid of groups like Scientology. Um, they also you know do this with individual gurus and stuff too. You know, there's some guru out in Nepal who is fashioning himself out as Jesus Christ, and I think they arrested him. You know, because he was getting too much of a following. So. You know, we don't want to applaud an authoritarian government acting in an authoritarian way to take out another authoritarian system. That's, I don't think that's praiseworthy, you know? I don't think that's how we want to do it. Because if that sets the example to the Western countries that that's what we should do, and believe me, there are way too many of you out there who think we should— you're, you're, you're literally, it would be the biggest foot bullet. It would be the dumbest thing in the world to start imprisoning Scientologists over here because they're Scientologists. I, I just can't imagine a stupider thing to do. Uh, so that's kind of my, some of my thoughts on that. I hope that that was, <laughs> I hope that was uh, useful in some fashion. Barney. Hubbard went into hiding in his later years and relied on messengers to control the Church of Scientology. Did the fact that he was unable to exert day-to-day control over the church result in a less authoritarian and more spiritual, quote-unquote, environment? Hey, Barney, thanks for this. Um, Okay, so, no, uh, Scientology did not become a kinder, gentler version of Scientology when Hubbard went into hiding. And the reason for that is because all those people were desperate to get Hubbard back. He hadn't died. He was just in hiding, right? He, he, had, he had gone off the off the lines, so to speak, because of the evil wogs and, and the evil wog law. And so they had to fight and push back against all that, which is why they were infiltrating the government and doing all the crazy shenanigans they were getting up to. When Hubbard went off the lines, the people who took over had been the people who were raised by Hubbard. Uh, the messengers, they were the ones who took over after the whole mission fiasco and the GO, Guardian's Office fiasco. So, uh, in fact, they were the ones who took out the GO ultimately and took out all the missions ultimately at Hubbard's be- you know, behest. But still, they, they were the ones who actually executed the orders. And they continued to run Scientology in a very, very authoritarian, dictatorial way. They did not bring it into a kinder, gentler phase. If anything, exactly the opposite. The more paranoid Hubbard became about infiltration into Scientology, that people like the FBI or the CIA were sending plants in and were trying to disrupt and destroy the organization. This was a big narrative running in the inside at the upper levels at that time. And they were paranoid as hell about being, uh, you know, um, uh, what's the word, um, infiltrated. So... So if anything, the tension levels and anxiety levels raised when Hubbard went away. And they were working their butts off to try to reorganize Scientology structurally, legally, excuse me, 
in order to make it safe for him to return and in order to strengthen and really, you know, like, like, like really steal up Scientology so that it could never have another FBI raid happen again, would never be ex- as legally exposed as they had been. That was what all of their effort was being put into when Hubbard went off the lines. And then he died in 86. And by that time, a new star had risen, and that was David Miscavige. He had gone from ActionAid and, and so it was sort of middle, low-level messenger. Um, he had risen. And he had, and he had, and through all the, you know, methods and chicanery that we've talked about where he, you know, got himself put in a place where he was the relay point between L. Ron Hubbard and the rest of Scientology. Very powerful position to be in, and he could control quite a bit with that. Plus, David Miscavige himself established some presence, and he was this raging, mad little guy, and he, um, and nobody wanted to get in his way. Uh, Jesse Prince started getting in his way and was sec checking him and dealing with him at Hubbard's again at Hubbard's behest. But then Hubbard died, and prior just prior to that, of course, Miscavige and his partner in crime were making sure that uh, those reports about that sec checking and stuff didn't even get in front of Hubbard. So, you know, so he basically sneaked his way through all that. And ran the gauntlet he needed to run and got rid of all the people he needed to get rid of so that he could take power and not have anybody uh, fight back against him. And that whole coup took about, you know, four four to six years. So uh, before, you know, after Hubbard died by 1987, Miscavige was in charge and no one else was anywhere in a position to take him out. He had arranged things that way. So this is where all the attention was at there. This is what these people were doing. And there were a lot of, you know, uh, administrative slaughters, I guess you could say, people being gotten rid of, old guard, people loyal to Hubbard, people loyal to his ideas, and not loyal to Miscavige and his vision. They were just getting ousted left, right, and center. So that was the situation there. At the lower levels, this anxiety and paranoia filtered down to them. And after the mission fiasco, where they got rid of all the missions or turned them into orgs, more more correctly, um, there would have been this splinter. A whole bunch of people had left. So really, the early mid-80s were really all about just, just keeping it going at all, much less, you know, trying to make it kinder, gentler. That was not the effort. The effort was to make it stronger and harder and tougher. And that was what the Sea Org was trying to do during that time, while still trying to play this weird balancing act of maintaining a friendly PR image and and an image that everything was under control and everything was great and everything was fine when it wasn't. So, you know, so it was pretty crazy time and uh, a lot going on there. But but no, not a less authoritarian and more spiritual environment. That's not what was going on during that time. There you go. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week and uh, listening to what I had to say. I hope that my answers were educational, informative, and entertaining. And I hope that if you believe that they are, that you will help support me on Patreon because uh, times are tight. Things are not fun right now for any of us. There is hope on the horizon with vaccines and that sort of thing, but we still got some, some crunch time between now and then that we got to get through. 
even a dollar, even $2 a month would make a huge difference if a bunch of you guys were to do that. And frankly, right now, I could really use the support and the backup. So like I said, if you are enjoying the channel, if you think that this content is worth supporting, then please do so. And also, if you have any suggestions or ideas for what I should or could be doing right now to make things more interesting, educational, and informative, please let me know. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.